All right. What's that, Kath? Yeah, hold him and preach. Yeah, sure. Well, my, my brothers and sisters and family, friends, and visitors. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. The door is closed, isn't it? There we go. I think we can safely say that upon this everything rises or falls. The centerpiece, the epicenter, the focal point of all the Christian faith for the past 2,000 years is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If he rose, then we have the brightest hope imaginable. If he did not, we fail and fall miserably. And as we'll see today in the text that I've selected, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a passage we've gone back to a number of times through the years, we're going to move along at a fairly rapid pace, but I want to simply drive home this morning that simple point that upon this, everything, everything rises or falls. I've asked Kathy to print up for you so you can watch on the overhead. We're going to look at the first 11 verses to start with. And as we move through these verses, um, I, I, I guess I, uh, to save time, I'll give it to you this way. The first point of the message is up on this, everything rises. That's the point of these 11 verses. And in it, you'll see the power of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, the person and the proof of the gospel. So let's begin at verse 1 as we read God's sacred word. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. So thus far, the gospel says to us, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Not once, not twice, but over a period of 40 days. And we have 17 different occurrences recorded in the scriptures which do not contain all of his appearances, but at least 17. So verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, 
And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. If you were just reading this uh, kind of in a relaxed, casual manner, you wouldn't be aware that you were walking into the thick of a controversy. You wouldn't know that you were walking into a conflict. You wouldn't know what's really going on. You wouldn't know that what Paul is really doing is arguing. And so he argues for the power of the gospel that you have believed and received, that you stand in it and you are saved by it. Elsewhere, we know in Scripture, Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so first we have the power of the gospel. This message, if received and welcomed and believed and embraced, literally has the power to save you for time and eternity, to make you right with God, to reconcile you to God, to bring you back into a living relationship with the one who made you. That's the power of the gospel. Then Paul speaks of the priority. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, right at the heart of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. Yes, his death on the cross for our sins. Yes, his literal burial. By the way, just a case in point, and I'm not going to go into it, but I, I was reading this week, and it was fascinating the man was writing for the sake of layman, and he was saying, this is what happens physically to the body when it dies. And he walked through the hours of what takes place when the heart stops and the organs shut down and the blood uh, moves to the lower extremities. And he just walked through all the process. Nowadays, we have mortuaries and we lay people there and they embalm them and they, they do it all in a very highly sterile environment and out of sight and away from us. People at this time understood death and they understood what happens at death and they know that within the first 48 to 72 hours, it's catastrophic what happens to the body. So when they say he was dead and buried, they knew exactly what they were talking about. 
But we're told here that he rises. He rises from the dead. According to the promise of the Old Testament scriptures, the proclamation of the apostles, and the witness of preachers and missionaries and martyrs for the past 2,000 years. A great company of witnesses all down through the centuries who proclaimed and extolled the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But he didn't stop at that. He appeared. He made sure that with, no, with, with absolute certainty those that he sent out into the world would carry a message and burning within them was the conviction that he lives. He was like those, like those two that met him on the Emmaus Road. And after he spoke with them and opened their minds and, to the scriptures and taught them about himself, then he left them and they turned to one another and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us in the way on the road? You know, I was thinking last night before I went to bed, I am aware of the limitations of what I'm doing this morning. What I'm doing is laying out evidence. I'm proclaiming what Scripture says. And I could tell you this, I, I do that to protect the church, to protect the gospel that's been given to us, to guard the doctrine, as Paul said. But I am fully aware that doctrine and evidences did not die on the cross for us. A person died on that cross for us. Which reminds me that, Tony, even through your fumbling and your best efforts at bringing a message, your confidence can't be in your message, can't be in your outlines, can't be in your approach. Your confidence must be in the Holy Spirit himself who came from heaven, who is among us, and who testifies to human hearts the truth of the gospel. And unless the Holy Spirit speaks to you through me this morning, you'll just get some information and you'll hear it and you'll say, yeah, that was a pretty good presentation. Maybe I'll get a couple pats on the back on the way out. But nothing will change. You must believe. He says, in this, you, you receive this message. You stand in this message. You are saved by this message unless you believed in vain. Only the Spirit of God brings about regeneration. And when the Holy Spirit is at work within you and your heart begins to burn like those men on the Emmaus Road, then the evidence is something you celebrate. You don't need to be convinced anymore when the Holy Spirit comes in the day of power and awakens your heart to faith in Christ. Well, the power, the priority, and of course the person is centered on Christ himself. Christ is Christianity. Christ is the gospel. It's him and him alone who achieved it all, who accomplished it all on our behalf. But what about the proof? Well, he outlined it, didn't he? And it's only partial, by the way. There's six 
different testimonies that are laid out before us. There's the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, there's this argument going on. It's like you're in a courtroom. And Paul is presenting witnesses. Why is he doing that? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But he says all the Old Testament scriptures point to him and what he would accomplish in his resurrection. And then he lays out five others. He appeared to Cephas, and he appeared to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred at one time, most of whom you can go talk to them, Paul says. They're here. They're among us. They're still alive. They're eyewitnesses. Then to James and all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. This is all evidence. Well, why, Paul? Why are you going to all the trouble to to make this argument? Well, because not only does everything rise on this message, but everything falls if it's not true. It's catastrophic if it's not true. And I was thinking, I'm always thinking, especially at bedtime on Saturday night. If this was true in the first century, how much more is it true now? After 2,000 years. You know, tradition tells us that these 12, these apostles, the 12th being Paul because Judas hanged himself after betraying the Lord, Tradition tells us and history tells us that every one of them, without maybe, except for maybe the exception of the Apostle John, was martyred for this message. Well, let's look at the next section. We're looking at verses 12 through 20, and you'll see why Paul is arguing. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Aha, now we know why he's arguing. There are some skeptics in Corinth. There are some skeptics and mockers who've even wormed their way into the church of the Corinthians. And Paul is livid about it. And so, verse 12, he brings up this issue. And really what he is saying is, let me, let me say this. Not only does everything rise on the truthfulness of the gospel message, but everything falls if it's not true. Let's follow. Follow with me, would you? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And... If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. 
you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, you're never going to see them again. They've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. What does Paul do here? Well, basically, he says this. He says, if, if the dead are not raised and Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile. It's vain and empty and valueless. It's of no profit. It's just wind. If Christ has not been raised, your faith in him is vain. You're living in an illusion. And you know what? We could have people here this morning. We're glad you're here. But they may be complete skeptics, and they may be unbelievers, and they may be listening to this thing. Yeah, that's kind of the way I feel about these folks. Their faith is vain. It's empty, and it's futile. What a sad state of affairs if that's where your soul is this morning. Then the disciples are frauds. They're a bunch of phonies. They're imposters, deceivers, liars, con artists. But that makes no sense. Why would a con artist who knew full full well that he was deceiving others lay down his life in martyrdom for such a message? Not only that, Paul says in verses 16 and 17, the cross has failed. You're still in your sins. And you're under condemnation. And your destiny is separation from God forever in a place the Bible calls hell. Fifthly, Paul argues then the grave and death are final. That's it. You know, I was thinking of this also the other day. I almost asked Kathy to do it. I was going to have her do a PowerPoint for us and every second show a different cemetery from all over the world, from Brazil and Africa and Indonesia and Europe and just show shots of cemeteries vast, sprawling cemeteries, Arlington included, all of the cemeteries, just show us about two minutes worth of cemeteries and then remind us all of these words. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for an hour is coming when all who are in the grave shall hear my voice and shall come forth in resurrection. Some, the resurrection of the righteous, the believing, the forgiven, and some raised unto judgment and banishment from the presence of God. Can you imagine what an event that's going to be? And all he has to do is utter his voice, and the dead shall rise. Wow. So if the gospel's not true and 
Christ was not raised, then death is final, the grave is final, and we are lost eternally. And last of all, Paul says, then everything is foolishness. Everything is folly. And so those who are the skeptics, those who mock, and those who taunt, and those just like in the first century, who now in our century, we have this new cancel culture trend. And Paul is arguing, you can cancel a lot of things, and you can mock, and you can deride, and you can disdain us for our belief in the gospel but you'll never cancel it because Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Aren't you grateful? Boy, I am. And so when we look at verse 20, Paul concludes this section in my in my mind he says but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep and this is such a beautiful idea we're not accustomed to this kind of language the first fruits but all down through the old testament first fruits was that time in the fall after all of the work had gone into it, and here are these vast fields of barley and wheat and corn, various grains. And the first fruit was the first of the ripening of the harvest. And God here in his word says that that's a picture for us, and we're to understand something, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, day, from the dead that empty tomb that he left behind, that first fruits of the resurrection means this, that the resurrection from, from in the Lord's mind is incomplete until he brings in the whole harvest. <laughs> Think of that. My resurrection is not complete, he says, until I bring all my sons and daughters home. To glory. That's the meaning of the first fruits. Are you among the harvest? Are you one of his? Have you received him, trusted him, believed him? I hope you have. So we have all these testimonies. Now just think about what's happened today in these few short minutes together. We've had readers, we've had prayer. We've had a number of magnificent songs that testify to the resurrection of Christ as we celebrate together. We have all this going on. We have now the preacher fumbling about doing the best he can to bring a message. And all of this is taking place. Here's all these various testimonies. But there's one testimony that towers over them all. In fact, in many ways, it's the only testimony you need uh, to receive into your mind and heart today and act upon it. 
Let's look at it together. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. This is his testimony of himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Even, excuse me, he who believes in me, Jesus said, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? And I would not be faithful to the Lord this morning at all if I did not repeat that question. Yes, I would not be faithful to him this morning at all, would I? If I didn't look out to you, each one of you, not the person next to you or behind you, just, just you, and ask you, do you believe? Do you believe the gospel? Because not only does all of Christianity rise or fall, depending on the truthfulness of the risen Christ, but your soul's very destiny will rise or fall depending on what you do with these words. Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And here he proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to as many as received him, to them he gave the, the power to become children of God. to everyone who believes on his name. It is really a miracle. I'm aware that if I could stack the evidence of his resurrection from here clear to the ceiling, when it gets right down to it, you must decide to believe. It really comes down to that. And that's why Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? Do you believe? Now, believing in Christ is more than merely an intellectual exercise. It is that, but it's more than that because he lays claim to your life when you trust him when you turn to him. You can't stay the same when you come to Christ, can you? He'll see to that. You know, as some <laughs> kind of a down-to-earth, salty old preacher one time said, he said, no, 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 no. It's not my job to clean them up. I catch them, but he does the cleaning. 
But when he gets hold of you, he will change you. He will make you different. He will make you new. Everything will change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And those new things just keep coming and coming and coming. Aren't you grateful this Easter Sunday? Aren't you grateful for those mighty words? Are you fearful? Do you look about the world and see the calamities going on, the uncertainties, all of the talk of impending doom? And oftentimes that talk is for political advantage. You understand that. But nevertheless, maybe there's some truth to it. But shall we be afraid? We sang that song a little while ago about living in this world and not being afraid. I can face tomorrow because he lives. That's saying so much more than we understand isn't it? I was reading in Revelation chapter 1 this week, and again, I could bounce to a half a dozen passages that were saying, preach me, preach me. And, um, but it's the Apostle John and his encounter with the risen, glorified Christ whose face shone with the brilliance of the sun, whose eyes were a flame of fire, the glorified Christ, the risen one who's now at the Father's right hand and who's promised to return. And John says, when I turned and saw him, John says, I fell in a heap. I was as a dead man before him. Now, remember, this is the Apostle John who, who leaned on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. The Apostle John who wrote that I'm the, I'm the disciple whom Jesus, what? Loved. But oh, when he saw him in his present state, risen, victorious, glorified, and reigning over heaven and earth, when he saw him, he fell before him as a dead man. And then it says this, and he placed his right hand on my shoulder and said to me, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Behold, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and to hell. What does he mean by that? That all of us by nature, as 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, death came through one man, therefore life came through one man. Death came through Adam. We've all died spiritually and are destined to die because of Adam's sin and our own participation in that sin. But Jesus Christ conquered it all. He lived a holy and perfect, impeccable life in this world. He went to the cross as a sinless man. And he died in our place under the judgment of God upon our sin. Was buried and raised again. 
And Christ says, I hold the keys to your death and your hell. Shall I emancipate you from it? Or shall I let you experience the inevitable of dying in sin? Which would you have, Jesus says, because the authority is mine? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you believe this, Jesus said? And so as we close, I leave you with his question. Do you believe this? It determines everything. Faith becomes the supreme human act. A gift from God enabled by the Holy Spirit, but it becomes an act nonetheless that is an act that you participate in. You must believe and be born again. What, a, what an Easter Sunday and what a glorious Savior. Let's pray and then we'll have a closing song. Lord, you who know the minds and hearts of every person in this world, you who have drawn people here this morning that love you and trust you and celebrate your resurrection, others who are perhaps on the fringes and are just not quite sure, Lord, if there are mockers or skeptics in our midst, oh, we just ask you to correct that. You are more than capable of correcting their unbelief and correcting their disdain and their excuses. Lord, lay their excuses to rest. Reveal yourself to them as the living one, the one who was dead but is alive forevermore. Lord, you're here speaking still. Your life, your perfect life speaks to us. Your sacrificial death on the cross speaks to us. Your burial speaks to us. And the empty tomb speaks to us of your greatness and your glory. And Lord, we pray and ask, that not a heart here would go away unbelieving. But they could answer that question that you address each of us with. Do you believe this? Oh, Lord, may every soul here say yes. Lord Jesus, I believe you, and I need you. Forgive me, renew me, change me, and make me your child. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.